Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we always do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Paul Cruz, a pediatric endocrinologist from St. Louis, who's going to help us understand the current state of affairs regarding gender dysphoria, its diagnosis, its treatment, and side effects of treatment. So, Tom, tonight's uh, show, today's show, depending on what time you're listening, it's about feelings. So it's kind of interesting that we have three men on a show talking about feelings. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't agree to talk about feelings. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) How dare we? But this idea of gender dysphoria, by definition, it means a feeling, dysphoria. Um, And the phrase describes the feeling of discomfort or distress that, that one might occur, one might experience if one doesn't feel comfortable with one's uh, anatomic or genetic gender. Now, I'm not trying to dance around these terms. They're complicated terms, but I don't want to confuse our listeners because they're confusing. But transgender people, that is to say those people who think that they are not the gender of their parts, if you will, uh, they may or may not experience dysphoria about those feelings. So, uh, the so trans- we're talking about feelings about feelings? Exactly. Well said. <laughs> so the diagnosis is listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5. We've actually referred to that before on some of our other shows. It's produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and it diagnoses mental conditions. And the term gender dysphoria replaced the old term gender identity disorder. And what was said to be really an attempt to be more descriptive and less judgmental. Uh, Now, I think we'll probably talk about this some with our guests, but this is a very subtle yet profound difference in language. And as we know, words matter. Yes. It's suggesting that the feelings of wanting to be a different gender than one is, is not the problem. It's only a problem if one has ill feelings or dysphoria about those feelings. That's hard to track, I think. It's so, hard to study. It's not objective. By definition, it is subjective. Doubly subjective. And I think in analogies. So the first analogy that pops to my head is, if one has a desire to murder people on a regular basis, that is to be a serial killer, this logic would say, that's not a problem unless you feel bad about that desire to murder people on a serial basis. Wow. <laughs> the feelings about the feelings are the problem. So this really does represent, I think, a monumental change that crept into the medical language back in 2013, way back then. Before that, as I said, it was called gender identity disorder. Um, and the word disorder was thought to lead to stigma. And so uh, it was removed. But again, the feelings aren't abnormal, only the feelings about the feelings. So I tried to get a sense of how common really is this? And I looked gender dysphoria in Black's Medical Dictionary, 43rd edition, a UK publication. And they point out that gender dysphoria occurs in one in 30,000 male assigned birth people. That's in other words, if you have male parts, about one in 30,000 people have these ill feelings. About one in 100,000 people with female parts uh, have these feelings. Uh, Another interesting tidbit from a survey that was done in New Zealand of high school students, about 1.2% of students responded yes to the question, do you think you are transgender? Now, again, not to beat up the vocabulary, being transgender is not having transgender dysphoria. Uh, Being transgender now in the DSM-5 isn't an abnormality at all. So because of the real difficulty in finding much in the way of scientific literature that, that I felt like I could trust, I decided to do what I think we Catholics ought to always do. <laughs> and I turned to the church and looked at church teaching on the topic. Easy, right? Not so much. Why not? Why wouldn't it be easy? Well, it's not as simple as it sounds. There's a lot out there that's written about church teaching, uh, and there's numerous opinions about church teaching on the topic but it really varies widely based on what is obviously the writer's individual agenda and biases. 
Um, I did find a terrific resource from our brethren to the north um, in the great white state of Canada, the great white north, right? <laughs> uh, from a bishop from our, our brethren in the Eastern Catholic Rite, specifically the Ukraine Catholic Rite, in a publication called Bioethics Matters, a really great website. Uh, and they looked, this bishop looked at three sites uh, to address this. The first is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2333, uh, to quote, each of us is made in the God's image as man or woman. Pretty straightforward statement. Gender identity is determined at conception, genetically, anatomically, and chromosomally. And a person must accept that objective identity. That's very clear from the catechism. The next is. <laughs> it is. The next publication the site references is the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church, 2004 Section 224, and I'm paraphrasing it, everyone should acknowledge and accept his or her sexual identity. And then lastly, uh, a beautiful quote from Pope Benedict XVI in an address to the Curia, December 12th, way back in 2012. He says, and I quote, there's no doubt that the church, while sympathetic to those who have this condition, does not condone any move that would attempt to alter the person's body to represent the opposite gender although it would recognize counseling therapies that try to alleviate the dysphoria or distress that exists, end quote. So three great resources there for our listeners if they want to track so those. So B-16 down. even admitted getting rid of the bad feelings about the feelings was a legitimate thing to do. Absolutely, absolutely. But changing one's body to was one's not. desire was not okay. So listeners, I guess, let me offer a word of caution as we begin uh, this show. Before you begin searching for guidance on this topic, uh, you must be very careful what you read. And if the writer appears or outright contradicts the catechism, um, if you find a contradiction, click away, lest you be uh, misled. And I think probably most importantly, listeners, uh, and in all sincerity, if you or if someone you love is struggling with a gender-related issue, Please don't think for a moment that we here at Dr. Doctor or our guest uh, intend to sound insensitive to the potentially devastating problem. I mean, just the opposite. It's because we are all men and women created in the image and likeness of God that we all deserve to be treated with the utmost care and dignity as a human person, right? Um, it also means, though, not whitewashing over this devastating problem just by playing around with the language uh, that we use to diagnose it while ignoring this actual fundamental problem. So doing that is to ignore the problem and thereby ignoring the dignity of the person that's struggling with the problem. So being ill at ease with your genetic makeup, that's a psychiatric problem. You can't dress that up. It's a disordered state within the natural law and it deserves to be called what it is and those with it deserved to be helped by us and hopefully people a lot smarter than us. And we have a, one of those a lot smarter people with us tonight. Dr. Paul Hrues published an article in the Lineker Quarterly. That's the official journal of the Catholic Medical Association. Uh, it was published online September 20th, 2019. It's also been in print. It's called Deficiencies in Scientific Evidence for Medical Management of Gender Dysphoria. And he's going to uh, talk about that. But before we get to Dr. Hrues, our trivia question, our medical trivia question of the day, topic gender ratio. What else could it be? Of course. In 1962 and 2017, the United States had the same gender ratio, according to the website ourworldanddata.org. So the gender ratio is how many boys to girls are there. So for every 100 girls born each year in the United States, how many boys were born? in 1962 and 2017 and all the years um, in between and at approximately what age does the worldwide ratio of males to females equal one in other words it's imbalanced at birth it's imbalanced at death and somewhere in between it becomes about one at what age does that happen you're gonna have to wait until the end of the show to find out but just after this break we'll be back with dr paul Cruz here on dr doctor Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Paul Frews. He is a pediatric endocrinologist at Washington University in St. Louis. He's both an associate professor of pediatrics 
and of cellular biology and physiology. His PhD is in biochemistry. He got his MD at Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, and he also has a National Catholic Bioethics Center certification in healthcare ethics. And from 2012 to 2017, he was chief of pediatric endocrinology and diabetes at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Ruse, Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Pleasure. You've written an article that we mentioned at the beginning of the show about gender dysphoria. And, you know, 10 years ago, it wasn't even on my radar, and now it's everywhere. What's happened in the last five to 10 years that this is such a big topic of interest? Yeah, uh, you're right. Um, you know, that uh, until very recently, um, you know, the condition actually has been well known for, for decades. Uh, you know, the people that experience a, an identity of, um, of who they are in their sexual identity that's different from the biological sex. But really what happened about 10 years ago is, is that uh, through some um, uh, advocacy efforts and uh, some high profile cases, uh, for example, uh, Bruce Bruce Jenner becoming uh, Caitlyn Jenner, um, really drew the attention uh, of the public. And, uh, and really, it's, it's been present in the media. And um, there are many, many questions about uh, why we're seeing such a rise in the number of individuals uh, that are experiencing this difficulty with uh, their uh, sexual identity, uh, their gender, um, as opposed to their biological sex. Um, and, and, you know, the, what people have, have frequently said is, is that, that these people have always existed. Now they're coming forward because they, there's emerging um, efforts to, to do medical transition uh, on these people. Um, but there's also evidence, uh, and probably stronger evidence, that much of what's going on here is that people are identifying problems that they've always had that they would have attributed to other causes. Uh, two issues of gender. And, and so there's, there are many questions that remain unanswered, but it, it, it's really certainly become mainstream now. Um, and in many cases, uh, children, uh, for example, are often glorified uh, in their social environments if they come out um, as being uh, transgender. So it's, it's uh, you know, something that, uh, that many um, children are actually experiencing um, as far as a, a drive uh, to be uh, ex for that. So, Paul, we talked uh, a little bit at the beginning of the show about this sort of tricky terminology that gender dysphoria is feeling badly about not liking your gender. But as a pediatrician that deals with endocrinology and, and similar issues, did we just stop saying if a child doesn't like their uh, assigned genetic gender that that's okay or that that's a problem? Did, did one day we just stop doing that or how, how, what got us to where we are today? Well, so the, the terminology that the transition from the original diagnosis as gender identity disorder to the current uh, terminology of gender dysphoria was really a, a concerted effort to, to take away any stigma that, you know, to really make an ideological assertion that having this discordance in your gender identity uh, and your biological sex is, is normal. Uh, and that was uh, really not based on any science uh, whatsoever. Mm. So as the, um, you know, the, uh, the psychiatrist, uh, you know, terminology, um, it's really to draw attention away from that and making an ideological assertion that this is normal, and then focusing on uh, the discomfort that one experiences. And, and the, the dilemma that one has is, is that if you say this is normal, you have to justify why we're engaging in medical interventions. And so the so rather than uh, looking at the condition itself, uh, to, to focus on comfort that one uh, is experiencing, and that is the basis for uh, the, um, the medical approaches, uh, to, to gender transition. In the beginning of the show, Chris gave, uh, you know, frequency of people identifying as, you know, transgender male or female. Uh, but in your article, you mentioned that there's more females now than maybe five or 10 years ago, identifying as male. What do you think is behind this shift? Yeah, there there still are many questions as to to why we're in the shift, and and just as a little bit of a perspective, um, until uh, this this current um, you know um, explosion really of of people presenting with uh, gender dysphoria, it was an extremely rare condition. Uh, you know, we observe this in in maybe uh, one in every you know, 20, 30, 40, 000, uh individuals, and there was a, pre a predominance of of uh, males uh, over females. 
Uh, much of what we're seeing now are females uh, that are identifying as male and, and um, oftentimes um, in social groups. And these are individuals that really had no gender questioning and, and, and were comfortable in, in their sexual identity uh, as early, um, younger years in their childhood. Uh, and, um, you know, there's still much we need to, to learn about, uh, you know, the shift that's going on. But uh, there certainly is uh, some warning signs or some current concerns and a need to, to do rigorous uh, investigation as to um, what is going on here um, that uh, females uh, frequently developmentally often have struggles during adolescence, for example, uh, in, in identifying um, who they are. Uh, and, and they may be attributing some of those struggles uh, to, to gender issues. And so uh, we don't know the answer here, but it's clear that there has been a shift both in the increase in the, in the total number. By some estimates now, um, there was a study that came out of uh, Minnesota that said 3% of, of youth question their gender identity, a very uh, uh, far cry from what we had seen previously. Many of those individuals are not seeking to have medical interventions, mm -hmm. uh, but because it's so mainstream and you're engaging this population that during essence by um, the natural process of adolescence is, is questioning their identity, who they are in the world in relation to others, um, never attributing it to gender issues. And so that, at least that's a, a very strong uh, hypothesis that, that can be investigated uh, in a scientific way. So Paul, is there a gender gene? Is there something that's just different about their makeup that makes them feel, feel that way? Well, there certainly have been people that have tried to search for uh, the genetic basis uh, for this sex gender uh, discordance. And I think with the evidence that we have right now, the best I can say is that there are many different contributing factors, and one of them might be genetics, but that does not necessarily mean that there's, and it probably doesn't mean that there, there's a gender uh, gene. Um, but there are many conditions that we know of in, in medicine where uh, there are genetic predestines. And, and we can think about um, you know, things like alcoholism or compuls compulsive uh, gambling, uh, where, where people are predisposed, but it doesn't determine uh, what, how they're going to um, develop any, any particular condition. And when we think about gender dysphoria, uh, we can think about many things. For example, there, there is a large uh, increase in the risk of being, having gender dysphoria if you have autism. Uh, and um, in the basis of that, um, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons why that may be. Uh, people um, having differences in resiliency, <clears throat> coping mechanisms, uh, uh, many things that, that could drive somebody to have that experience um, that is maybe contributing but not determining uh, that. Um, so I think that there, there clearly are, are environmental, um, there are um, you know, genetic um, and, and social influences uh, to this condition. And, and I think that there's a, an interplay that probably differs um, in both uh, degree and, and magnitude in, in any one individual. So Paul, you mentioned earlier this idea of you know, angst that exists in adolescence. And as, the, as a parent of a, a middle school girl, I would say, maybe the hardest thing in the world there is to be is a middle school girl. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough group. But when does, for our, for our listeners that have children, when does that normal, difficult, uh, prepubital, peripubital angst become, I don't like my gender? Uh, is that a continuum? Is it a completely separate set of problems? H how do parents recognize that? Um, you know, to understand how this presents, there really is a, a, a spectrum. There are, there are some children um, that have uh, different struggles earlier in life and, and lots of factors. And, and as people have started to study this, um, for example, in, in the parental relationships, uh, there, there is uh, some evidence, it's, it's not uh, worked out, um, of... Um, for example, children that have been uh, subjected to um, emotional or, or um, uh, sexual abuse or parents undergoing divorces or um, you know, the ways that the parents interact with the child. Um, there are interactions with, with peers as well. Um, so uh, you know, we, we see some that, that have uh, some of these uh, issues. And, and actually when, when you have uh, 
you know, the schools teaching that, that, you know, gender identity uh, can be fluid and it can change over time. Many, you know, seeds are planted at young ages, even before children even understand sexuality, you know, who they are as a sexual uh, being. Um, but then uh, the adolescent years, usually uh, at the time that the body is is starting to change uh, and develop in a sexual way, um, that you know it's it's interesting that we talk about puberty, which is the biological physical changes of of transitioning from childhood to adulthood, uh, happens and it overlaps with adolescence, which is really all of the behavioral and and, and social. Um, developmental tasks that a child has uh, in that period. Uh, and so we often uh, inter, uh, um, you know, talk about them uh, as being the same thing. They happen roughly at the same time. So um, what we, we certainly know about as far as the developmental issues and, and anybody that um, has uh, spent any time in a junior high uh, <laughs> when kids are forming and, and uh, really they're, they're really trying to assert you know, their independence and really test out uh, who they are. Um, so we can see this as a developmental process throughout childhood when people begin, uh, begin to uh, have questioning of their gender, um, uh, you know, doesn't uh, necessarily occur at a, at, a, at a specific age, it can happen at any age. Paul, what role does testosterone level play perhaps in, in females who start to identify as males? I mean, growing up, we used to talk about girls who were tomboys because they had more male type preferences. Is there any role for testosterone here? Well, there certainly um, are people that have investigated that, and uh, there certainly are effects of, of androgens, male-type hormones, including testosterone, um, that affect uh, the brain uh, in, even in development. And probably the best example is a, is a pediatric endocrinologist. Uh, you know, I frequently will encounter children that have normally high levels of testosterone uh, due, to, due to an adrenal problem called adrenal hyperplasia. And the experience really for uh, most, if, if not all of these individuals prior to uh, this uh, gender dysphoria uh, transition that's gone on recently is that they will indeed have uh, play behaviors and tomboyish behaviors, but uh, the vast majority of them uh, have a uh, gender identity. Uh, they recognize their, their um, identity uh, in line with their biological sex. And so um, it really uh, doesn't answer the question. Uh, there can, again, when we're talking about influences, it, it may be a contributing factor, but it's not determinative. And having tomboy behaviors is not the same thing as having a, a transgender identity. Well, let's get into where some of the the medical problems might be with treatment. I understand there are three components to treating children with gender dysphoria that start with social affirmation, then goes to uh, medical treatment, and then maybe the surgical treatment. So assuming that the people doing this with these patients have goodwill, why do they think that affirming a young child's identification with the opposite sex is a good thing? Um, well, you know, the, the, there are many people that are, are told um, that, that by affirming somebody, the, the discomfort that they have um, will reduced. And uh, in the short run, there is some evidence that suggests that, so that if you have this uh, strong uh, disconnect uh, with your uh, gender identity and, and your biological sex, um, you know, removing that barrier is going to have a, a temporary relief uh, for somebody. Uh, but the question is, what is the long-term uh, effect of that? And we know the natural history for the, the vast majority of children who present prior to puberty, if they're merely left alone, uh, will have a spontaneous uh, realignment of their uh, gender identity with their biological sex. Mm -hmm. um, so they're, they're, the, the goal is, is understandable as far as to relieve the suffering. Um, but again, getting back to this question of a developmental issue, there are many other areas of development that are difficult and, and they're um, to go through and, and they can often be very uh, distressing and painful. But if you prevent a child from being able to experience that, uh, that developmental challenge, they'll never get beyond that and develop the skills that they need uh, later in life. And so uh, despite the, the, the goal to, do, uh, to help that child, in, in fact, um, you may be actually um, uh, harming the child in that way. Now, the second component of treatment, especially if you get to children before puberty, is blocking puberty. I mean, that sounds pretty drastic. Is it really? Is it good? Is it bad? 
Well, so the, the rationale for uh, spring pubertal uh, development, um, there are many uh, reasons why one would want to do that. Uh, so the distress is actually um, because the body is changing in a way that um, somebody doesn't uh, desire. Uh, so to, um, there, there's many uh, arguments that this allows the child to, to buy more time to sort out uh, their gender identity, um, that it's a, a safe and reversible um, intervention. Um, but in, in fact, um, you know, there, there's uh, emerging evidence that the, the very fact of, of blocking that uh, puberty may solidify or at least strengthen uh, this desire to go on to later stages of, of medical intervention. So um, as opposed to the vast majority of, of children having uh, a realignment of the gender identity uh, with their biological sex. Those that are put on a pubertal blockade, um, the vast majority of them uh, will go on to, to get the later stages of treatment. So you actually interrupt uh, that, um, that process, at least uh, there's, there's much that needs to be studied uh, uh, because of that. Um, so, um, you know, that there also, uh, the difference here is that these drugs have been um, studied and used uh, for many years in children that have abnormally early puberty to, to halt a precocious uh, pubertal development. What is essentially being said is that normally timed puberty uh, is now a disease. Uh, that, that's something that is a, a process uh, that all children will go through um, is now something to, um, to, be, to be feared, uh, to be stopped, um, that it really is uh, the problem. Uh, so it's a, a way of, of completely changing the way we think about normal pubertal development. Um, and many questions remain about, about the effects of that. Um, so uh, there are, are uh, biological effects uh, uh, that, are, for example, affecting uh, bone maturation, bone uh, density. Um, there's lots of uh, uh, memory and learning issues that we're starting to learn a little bit more about. And then finally, this, this question of reversibility. Uh, you know, what, the, what people mean when they say that this intervention is reversible is that if you stop giving uh, the puberty uh, blocker, that the normal signals that drive puberty will uh, re-engage and start up again. Uh, and that part is, is true, but you're interrupting a developmental process. And so by doing so, you can never turn the clock. Um, and so, um, so. So that gets us through two steps. We're gonna have to take a break here uh, and come back for more with Dr. Roos talking about what are some of the problems with the treatments used for gender dysphoria here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the COVID virus-free virtual studios <laughs> of Redeemer Radio. Uh, Paul, we, we said off air in a conversation that there's been some really uh, up-to-date uh, legal changes, particularly uh, across the pond, as they say. Maybe you could help uh, listeners understand what's happening there. Well, I, I think that the experience in the UK is, is a, a few steps ahead uh, of the United States as, as far as uh, rec uh, starting to recognize at least uh, some of the uh, things that are going on may not uh, be as well as, as people are, are uh, putting it forward. Um, the case that just came out um, really was a decision acknowledging the fact that children um, are not really capable of informed consent uh, to pubertal blockade uh, in an intervention that can have drastic consequences uh, for the rest of their life. Um, a very straightforward uh, decision, uh, but many people are arguing today uh, in, here in the United States that children as young as uh, eight, nine, ten or um, uh, years old are able to make these decisions about uh, things that are going to affect uh, future fertility and, and uh, all of the medical interventions. And many times uh, there's an advocacy effort to intervene when the parents object uh, that the children are, are given that when they aren't in other areas. So the decision that came out uh, very recently was to acknowledge uh, that, and this really actually came out from several 
plaintiffs uh, who uh, were uh, put on this path of, of medical intervention uh, only later to recognize it didn't solve the problem. And uh, they, they cite the fact that when they were uh, uh, desiring that intervention, uh, they were really having other difficulties that weren't explored. So I think so this provides... Under 16 in the UK, they cannot initiate it on their own, correct? Uh, that is the, the, what the ruling has said. Excellent. That's correct. Let's move on from puberty blockade to cross-sex hormones, not only stopping your normal ones, but giving hormones of the opposite sex. What happens when that's done? Um, so that begins a process uh, that uh, has significant changes in the body. And one of the, the concerns, so this is where you give testosterone to a, a female uh, to virilize or make them look more male-like or estrogen to a male uh, to make them appear more like a female. Um, now, following the pubertal blockade where the, the, the testes and the ovaries have not had a chance to develop, when you begin those hormone treatments, it's expected um, that... Uh, uh, the result is going to be uh, sterilization or infertility. Um, so that's the, one of the most serious uh, effects of that um, uh, medical intervention. But there are many other aspects of that. Um, you know, it, it's not just how the body looks, it's how the body responds to those hormones that are very, very different. Uh, the levels of testosterone that are achieved in females is uh, markedly above what a normal female would, would um, experience. And there are diseases that we treat because we know the, the uh, bad effects of, of those high levels of testosterone in women, polycystic ovary disease and, and risk of, of metabolic disease and other problems. So we're exposing them to very high levels of hormone. Um, and many, in many cases, we don't really even know what the long-term effects are going to be. It's not been studied long enough in children. So, so you could have two rooms in your clinic with two young women, one of them has unnaturally high levels of male hormones you're trying to treat because it's causing problems. In the next room, somebody could be giving a woman those same problems by giving them those same hormones. Is that correct? Is that what we've come to? That's correct. And from a biochemical standpoint, you're, the, the physician uh, themselves uh, are inducing that, that state of, of imbalance of hormones uh, with, with all of the consequences uh, without, uh, because it's the desire of the, pa of the patient um, to, to have that. And then the next step some take is sex reassignment surgery, uh, removing certain body parts or trying to create a false body part that wasn't there in the first place. What's the result of doing that? Do these people actually feel better? Well, there's there's actually emerging data uh, where uh, we don't really know the long-term effects in children. It really has not been been studied long enough to, to actually know. The best data that we have are studies that have been done on adults that have gone through uh, these uh, surgical interventions. And when we look long-term, uh, the whole goal is to, to prevent them from um, having a suicide, suicidal risk. And what we find is, is that uh, after undergoing these interventions, the suicide risk is still markedly above. And in one study, uh, 19, 20-fold above the background population as far as uh, us completed suicides. So, um, you know, the, the long-term effects are not known in children, um, but we certainly have reason to question whether this is a, um, a, a prudent way to approach this problem um, in, in solving uh, gender uh, dysphoria, uh, even if the patient feels better. And, and many of the studies actually show that those that have uh, regretted um, these interventions, uh, they do well in the first several years afterwards. And, and really where they start to, to break out um, is about eight to 10 or 12 years uh, after the intervention. So, so that brings up uh, the point you brought up earlier or the, of Bruce Jenner slash Caitlyn Jenner. I haven't heard anything in the news and, and, his, her surgery was, what, several years ago. Do we know if he who is known as Bruce Jenner is having problems with that? Um, so I, I have not, uh, you're, you're corrected that there's been uh, not the same degree of, of media coverage and, and there are many questions and, you know, as far as the length of time and even in that, in that uh, situation, what we're finding in, in less, um, uh, publicized uh, cases is that many people that experience um, at least recognize that, that this intervention uh, did not solve uh, the problems and it didn't have the effect that they desired, um, they often remain silent. And this is a problem in many of the studies. When you try to look at them, they completely disappear. You, they're, they're not even followed up long term because they won't 
complete the study or respond to the investigator's request for lots of reasons. Um, so I think it's, it is a question that's out there. Um, in, in that particular uh, high-profile uh, case, I, I don't have any knowledge of, of, of where things stand. It certainly, uh, based on other data, uh, may take a few more years uh, before we see the, the real outcome. But uh, I know that uh, there are a growing number of people um, that are, are beginning to recognize um, and desire to uh, they call it detransition to realign their body back with their biological sex. And um, the, the number of patients is not clearly known, but uh, there's certainly more than are being um, reported. So, Paul, if I were a medical student today, and I was about 120 years ago, <laughs> but if, if I were a medical student today, what would I be taught uh, as to how to approach a child on my pediatric rotation that was unhappy with their uh, genetic sex. Um, so, um, you know, the, somebody who wants to um, assume a gender identity that's different than their biological sex, um, you know, begins at, at many different levels, even before the child uh, will, will make that known. Uh, in medical school, uh, many uh, um, questionnaires now are, are actively asking questions about gender identity, um, um, really stipulating what pronouns can be used, um, mm. uh, and and really um, the student um, is being taught that what they're um, that to affirm uh, somebody um, is really. Uh, the best approach to them. And there actually is a lot of interest in, in uh, the growing field of, of gender medicine. What is concerning to me as, as physician scientists, um, where we uh, really uh, hold to the standards of evidence-based medicine, uh, much of uh, the foundation of, of the current affirmation-only approach is based on very shaky grounds. And so if we held it to the same scrutiny uh, that we did um, in other medical conditions, uh, we would likely have a very, very different conversation with that student. So this is values-driven, not data-driven. It is, in, in many respects, uh, based upon ideological uh, principles, um, not based on science. It's based on a desire uh, to um, put forward uh, that um, that this is something that, that should be um, normal and accepted, uh, and that uh, rather than, than trying to really understand uh, what are the all of the factors that are going on in, in addressing the, the fundamental issues, and I think that many of physicians uh, have objected uh, to the rush uh, to to go into medical interventions without adequately explore, exploring uh, the the basis for why uh, a, a prospective patient is coming uh, for uh, that particular intervention. You know, it's a bit of a stretch, but it reminds me of some of our conversations we had about uh, about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide to a degree in the sense that if the patient wants to end their life, then it's our job as physicians to help them do that. Uh, here, the patient wants to change their identity. It's our job to help them do that, as opposed to a compassionate approach to trying to understand why they have these disordered feelings. That really does mark a monumental, I think, change in our thinking. Yeah, it's it's a marketing type of uh, of approach where um, you know to please the patient, um, people are willing to do things that are not helpful or in many respects harmful, and mm -hmm. and even you know the the condition itself, uh, there is no uh, test that you can do an objective test you know to be able to uh, determine uh, one's in, you know internal feelings. Uh, the diagnosis itself is based upon the patient reporting that this is what I have and this is what I need. Uh, very different than, than the way we, we, we approach uh, medicine in other areas. So, Paul, as we've been covering the COVID pandemic, when we talk about vaccines, most Americans said they wouldn't receive a vaccine until there were randomized controlled trials showing it was safe and effective. Yet the same American public is not doing that with regard to gender dysphoria. Why is there this disconnect? Um, I, well, you know, I, there, there certainly is the ideological push and there are people that are, are putting this forward. Uh, you know, it, it, it actually, you know, the, that question comes up very frequently. Why are we not uh, wanting to see the evidence? Uh, and, you know, the claims are being made that we can't even do the studies that need to be done. And, and that's from a false, uh, it, it's the way science is really turned upside down. You know, that's, rather than, than having a hypothesis and trying to find evidence, you know, to 
um, you know, whether that's correct or not. Um, it's having a conclusion and then trying to find uh, if we have any evidence to support what we're planning on doing anyway. Mm-hmm. It, it really is injustice uh, to the whole scientific method and uh, really um, is we're, we're starting to get more information now as, as time goes on uh, about um you know, that it isn't helping. And uh, really, we, we still don't know about all of the harms uh, that are being done. I think time will tell. Um, and um, there's certainly an opportunity for uh, people, even if, if they um, want to advocate for that approach, uh, to be cautious and to, to do the same safeguards that we would do in other areas of medicine. Chris, does this remind you of anything in your field of medicine? Well, I mean, it's pretty interesting. I mean, um, Sometimes it's been said that it's a similar to contraception uh, uh, and the like that that the feelings sort of drive drive what ought to be done as opposed to the science driving uh, what ought to be done. Um, but it's hard. I find it hard to listen to. It's a it's a tough story, and I think it it um, it strikes me as a parent. It strikes me uh, as a physician. Um, it, it's it's really tough. I, I see parents. And their understanding of what is right and normal being really taken away from the equation and these very, very subjective feelings, in some cases of children, literally children, prepubescent uh, children, that, that the law would not allow to get a tattoo without parental consent, uh, may have the ability to decide their future gender. It, it, it's, it's almost maddening, I think, to listen to. Paul, there's an altered paradigm of human anthropology here about what a person is who benefits from it you know they you know the cynics say always follow the money is is that it is it follow the money or is it something even deeper than that well some of the interventions that that we've been speaking about you know pubertal blockade and and some of the surgeries are uh, very expensive but i think most of the physicians that are engaging in, in these practices um are are really more interested um in, in trying to do what's best for the patient. The, the advocates that are putting this forward and the, those that are, are really distorting the scientific process and, and, and really uh, trying to shut down uh, any rational discussion as we're having here today, you know, about, about potential harms, you know, in, uh, of this uh, intervention, um, really uh, are fitting to the, the cultural um, um, belief that we can create our own reality. Uh, you know, we, we think of this, uh, this culture where uh, truth is, is not something that's objective, it's something that we make for ourselves. There certainly is a preponderance of people that are engaged in this um, that have uh, their own um, uh, personal agendas. Uh, I don't think that applies to everyone that, that's involved in this, in this uh, area. I think there's, there's many of them that are, are trying to do good um, but they haven't uh, really, and I think it's it's a byproduct of of you know the way we practice medicine. We touched on this earlier. You know that that when it's consumer driven, when it's all readers digest, read the headlines. You know people reading abstracts or even titles of papers or even summaries in in news articles, and then making uh, treatment decisions based on that without actually looking at the data. Um, you know, being pressed for time and and just buying um, you know the Cliff Notes version uh, without being critical. Are there chinks in the armor of the data that are being recognized even by those people of goodwill who think that they're doing a good thing by helping people transition to their opposite biological sex? Well, I think this is extreme of, of putting forward, and we've seen this in the COVID uh, era as well, where patient, papers are rushed out and, and really not uh, adequately uh, peer-reviewed or critically analyzed. Um, th- that really is accelerated in the gender field, where there's many papers that are being published uh, that uh, don't have controls. Uh, they have improper controls. They have uh, poor statistics. And some of that data is, is actually coming to light. Uh, there's a, a, a couple of uh, very recent papers, um, one uh, talking about blockade, you know, where it got made the headlines, you know, that, that pubertal blockade prevents suicide. And if you read the actual data in the paper, um, it says no such thing. It, it says that there's an association in, in your entire lifetime of, of having suicidal ideation and not considering the fact that the reason why you weren't put on pubertal blockers is, was because you had other issues. Um, and in a, um, 
another paper where um, it tried to make the case that surgery uh, reduced uh, uh, mental health uh, problems in individuals. When one uh, merely looks at the data itself, um, it was able to, um, there are many uh, people that objected and wrote um, letters to the editor, uh, and the authors themselves had to acknowledge that neither hormone therapy nor uh, surgical intervention uh, had any benefit on long-term use of uh, mental health um, uh, care. Um, and uh, But rather than retracting the paper, they merely said that perhaps our conclusions um, were too strong. So, Paul, are there any, though, researchers on that side of the belief aisle who are starting to see that what they're doing might actually be harming patients? Um, there are some um, that are beginning to be a little bit more cautious, but I think we're not actually at the point right now uh, where um, uh, this push uh, is, is slowing. Uh, in fact, there's, there's probably the drive for more and more people um, engaging in this, at this practice, more and more uh, students uh, you know, wanting to choose careers in this area. So I think we're a little bit early in this, but I think what we're recognizing um, uh, is that there are people out there um, that are, are not uh, helped um, that are, are dissatisfied and that um, are really um, starting to um, express their frustration of how they, they were treated and put on, on this. And so we're starting to see those changes. Um, there's, there's still an effort of any, any attempt to bring to light uh, some of these, these uh, chinks in the armor um, are vigorously uh, attacked. Um, it, it's not a rational discussion. You have people that um, really uh, don't look at the data. Um, they will um, make ideological statements. They'll, they'll make ad hominem attacks uh, on the people making, you know, put, uh, bringing the message forward. Um, but I think as more and more people start actually um, uh, either experiencing people um, that um, that have not been helped uh, or uh, begin to critically look at the at the literature, I think we'll see, see further change. In the last uh, minute and a half, two minutes, what advice would you have for parents whose children might be starting to question their gender? Well, for, for parents themselves, the parents uh, want to do the best for their children, and they do have uh, frequently, um, most often, a, you know, a, a good sense of what that is. Um, you know, loving your child um, is not the same thing as saying you can do whatever you want. Uh, parents <laughs> know this intuitively um, so that they can make it very clear that they, they love them, that they will respect them as, as individuals and that they will support them and that, um, you know, really finding the right uh, people to help them with, um, is, is a challenge uh, to find practitioners um, that will um, explore the underlying issues, um, you know, is, is uh, continuing to be a challenge. Well, Paul, and as we finish, is there a trustworthy resource that you could direct interested and concerned parents to? Well, I think that there's there's uh, the American College of Pediatricians has put out a number of, of different uh, resources. Um, there are, are um, you know, one of the problems with with uh, doing a Google search and going on the internet um, is is that one will be flooded by information that contains. Um, the less than rigorous knowledge, and it's more of an uh, ideological statement. So I think that uh, that is one resource where, where one can go to um, to at least um, begin the process of trying to, to discover uh, what science actually says um, and uh, what uh, people are putting forward as, as the best approach for, for these affected children. And Tom, for our listeners, words matter, as we often say. That's the American College of Pediatrics, not the American... Excuse me, a pediatricians. Pe I'm making the mistake. Not the American, uh, not the American Academy, Academy of Pediatrics. Correct. Uh, ACPs. Yes. A very different organization with a very different position on this uh, on this important topic. Paul, Paul thank you so much uh, for enlightening us and our listeners. Uh, we couldn't thank you more. And I'm sitting here thinking uh, how fortunate we are that you're a pediatrician and that you can be the voice of reason for us as parents and other physicians. So thank you. You're very welcome. A very important discussion. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. And you know, as a listener, it's time for the answer to our medical trivia question, gender related, as you might guess. Yes. So the gender ratio at birth in the United States, and it's been relatively stable for almost 60 years, is for every hundred girls born in the United States, how many boys are born. And I was shocked at how big this difference was. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Stroud isn't because he probably keeps good data of his deliveries. 
And it was actually 105 males born for every 100 girls born. But we know that women live longer than men, and there's a lot of reasons for that, usually things involving power tools and large uh, automobile-like uh, vehicles being driven in ways they shouldn't be. But by, by death, um, there's far more females than males, you know, in the 70s and 80s. So at what age are there as many males as females? I don't know if you knew the answer, Chris. I did not. I did not know. Uh, so right now, being over 50, uh, I'm now in the minority as a male. So around the age of 50 or 51 is when the sex ratio, the gender ratio in the United States becomes even. So now you know. Now we're over to Chris with the top three takeaways from this episode. Tough to pick in such a, a fact-laden episode. Uh, but one uh, that strikes me, if you took your child to an uh, adolescent psychiatrist today, if that psychiatrist was following the DSM-5, they would tell you that it's normal for your child to want to be a different gender than their genetic gender. Um, that's a new phenomenon, strictly speaking, since 2013. Uh, number two, we talked about in our last episode on COVID that science can't exist alone. It has to have policy and values uh, to drive it. I think we learned in this episode that um, sometimes policy needs science uh, to drive it. Much of what is being done in this area of gender and gender reassignment has nothing to do with good science, uh, but really agendas instead. Um, and then lastly, this idea that, that I think Paul said so well, that in this new paradigm, um, reality is actually quite malleable, and one can create one's own reality. That is, truth is whatever I create it to be. Uh, and that certainly represents a paradigm shift. And it's not what we believe as Catholics. And no. And as we heard at the beginning, if we want to know what we believe as Catholics, go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. There it's all written down quite go. nicely. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And by all means, please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate us while you're there. It helps other listeners find us. And of course, be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.